The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Relationships, and Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho from Untangling Addiction led a track called Untangling Addiction, Stronger Through Jesus-Styled Discipleship. Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho, or Dr. D for short, has written for Discipleship.org a great ebook about overcoming addiction through discipleship. As a medical doctor and disciple of Jesus, he brings a unique approach to this topic. You can download this book for free at discipleship.org slash addiction. Now for today's track session. I'm Dave Widener and my wife Robin, Hi. and we are from Boise, Idaho, um, and we lead a ministry called Purity Restored Ministries. And so it's a ministry of, we call it uh, a healing ministry. Uh, we try to help people go from their, uh, their wounds, oftentimes caused by abandonment, addiction or abuse and how to learn to become wounded healers and how to take and what we do is we take our mess and we turn our mess into our message and um, I feel a lot like Paul and first Timothy where he said you know God chose me the worst of sinners so he might put on display his unlimited patience for those who would come after and so that's how I feel about uh, you know what he's doing through me and it is uh, it is you have to pinch ourselves sometimes when you know our whole story and you find out uh, where we've come from, and you'll get bits and pieces of that today. It truly is uh, God's grace on display. Mm. You know, one of my um, big recognitions in the last three years of doing a lot of travel was really understanding um, God's purpose in saving us, but not healing us. You know, in other words, a lot of us believed that when we came to Christ and then, you know, we had all our sins washed away, we believed that we would be healed as well. And especially I talked to a lot of, we talked to a lot of young people. We just spoke at a large international campus conference. We speak a lot to teens and campus students. And this is a misconception they bring into Christianity. They feel like it's shameful to look back or go to your past, or that they should be past that already. And I think a lot of us have lived our whole lives that way, feeling like we should be past that. Um, but I really believe that it was in God's wisdom that we came up from the waters of baptism with our wounds intact. And those wounds are what draw us to God, aren't they? Wounds give us empathy for a lost world. Our wounds give us wisdom to help others are struggling through our continual wounds. And life has many, doesn't it? We could, we could li list a whole litany of them that Dave and I have been through, you know, from, from the day our son called, holding his girlfriend in his arms and she was dead. You know, I mean, to having my campus daughter set up a time with me and the next day be shot by a, a armed gunman on campus in the back of her head. You know, we've been through stuff. And those create wounds. But yet, in God's wisdom, those wounds, whether they're far in the past, like my sexual abuse as a kid, or they're more recent, those are meant for purpose and for glory. And of course, we know Jesus was resurrected with his wounds. And I picture Jesus being in the tomb, you know, and, and, and getting ready to resurrect, and he's like, God, don't take away the wounds. By then, my disciples will know me. Thomas is going to need those wounds. 
Those who walked with me are going to need those wounds to know I still understand. I st I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to have wounds. They're a mark of how I've suffered. They're a mark of who I am. And, you know, I've had some great women's discipleship times or recovery group times where we've sat in a circle and we've had what we call wound revealing parties where we just named them kind of rapid fire going around and around and around until we drained all the wounds. And they become battle scars. They become something that God wants to use. So that's our context for this talk today, is that those primal wounds of abandonment, addiction, and abuse are purposeful in, our, in the great potter's hands. So in our culture, and really in the world culture as we travel around other countries, uh, abandonment, addiction, abuse are prevalent. You can't hardly go in anybody's family. If we went around in the room today and said, can you name someone in your, your circle of friends or your uh, physical family that has struggled with one or oftentimes are clustered, sometimes it's all three together, uh, you wouldn't would have to go me. very far. <laughs> At least in our family, you don't have to go very far to find multiple examples of people who are suffering uh, because of abandonment. And you can call abandonment, another word maybe we use more often, is loneliness. Uh, recent studies have found that nearly a third of the population of the U.S. could actually be diagnosed as being pathologically lonely. It's loneliness to the point where it's affecting their health, it's affecting their mental health, it's affecting their physical health. It is uh, almost like a disease that is prevalent in a society with all kinds of electronic connections, uh, they're not filling the void for true relationships. And loneliness is rampant. Um, look at the numbers on addiction, and again, we could just talk numbers the whole time, but addiction, whether it's sexual addiction, the background that I came out of, uh, addiction to pornography, uh, those numbers, Josh McDowell commissioned a survey by the Barna Group, there's a book called The Porn Phenomenon, and the numbers are staggering for those who who are followers of Jesus, who are still have an ongoing relationship with pornography, uh, over 50% of the men in your church fall in that category, according to the research. You go to the campus students, it gets closer to 70%. You go to the teens, it gets up around 90%. Um, it is epidemic. And so we know there's gonna be a tsunami effect of how that's gonna impact relationships ongoing, addiction, and then of course, abuse. Well, yeah, I, I, um, I grew up in a marvelous family, I'd say. My dad was an engineer. My mom was a portrait artist and a seamstress in such a talented family. Our early pictures, we look like the picture-perfect family. All the kids are dressed immaculately and we're so artsy and hip. And, but with a lot of kids and a lot of pressure, eventually my dad started drinking more and more. You know, originally social drinking, then it... And in my teen years, this dad that I loved so much, it got really dark. And abuse entered our family. I remember weeping, you know, watching him with a belt, my brothers, you know, and hiding from him. And fear came. And, um, and verbal abuse came for me. Um, and then God intervened. I became uh, a Christian at age 17. Someone knocked on my door, and I went prancing out in a bikini. and. Kaboom, the gospel had, had kind of come and started its entrance into my life. And, um, but I brought with me a lot of stuff, a lot of abuse. And abuse 
uh, is a trauma that leaves a tear in the soul. So that tear wasn't totally disappeared when I became a Christian. And um, I can say that I talked to so many people. You know, we, we travel all over the world. We've been in, Purity Restored has been in, will have been in, I think, up 55 cities in two years. Um, so we've traveled a lot. And I, speak, I have a lot of women come and talk to me. And um, I love the women who feel like me, who are kind of, you know, feel like if anybody really knew everything, would they love me? You know, would they accept me? And I can remember, you know, a big breakthrough for me before I wrote my first book, Secure in Heart on Insecurity. I would, I, I got, I was in a mentoring relationship and I started saying, I need you to help me here. I'd like to write down a lot of stuff and come to you every week and just have you listen. Just have you, you know, no discipling, just listen. And bit by bit, I was learning to get vulnerable. And then she started getting vulnerable. And that became the best mentoring relationship ever. So you know what? We need these topics. And we're excited to bring this to you today. We're going to do a little group participation here. Um, because in preparing the lesson, uh, you start thinking about the ministry of Jesus and who his followers were. And uh, the ones we can name by name, others we know by a situation. But um, I want us to use our imagination a little bit, a little biblical imagination. But these aren't too long a stretch. Some of them are, are real obvious. Some of them may take a little more imagination. But who amongst the followers of Jesus do you think would fall into the category of abandonment, addiction, or abuse? About all of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did, did you say something? Mary Magdalene. Magdalene. Oh, oh Mary absolutely. Magdalene. Yes. And we would say her. <laughs> Which one would you call it? Probably her, maybe all three, probably. <laughs> Most likely she'd be all, she'd have, we had to debate, the, when the book came out, abandonment, addiction, the debate was, was it, was it and abuse, like they were all three, or we did, we did or, because maybe we didn't want to leave anybody to think, well, that's not me, uh, but in many times, it's all three. Mary Magdalene, great example, yes? Woman at the well, absolutely. Abandonment, Abandonment for over sure. And, over. and probably some addiction as well. Right. You gotta guess some of those Matthew men were abusive. Took abuse. Yeah. And he probably took abuse and probably the isolation that yeah. he felt the abandonment he felt probably certainly from his own people. When you're a tax collector, that he probably felt abandoned by the Jews at many points. So Matthew, good example. Yes. The man with the legion of demons stayed yes. followed Jesus but stayed in the village. Yes. He was rejected by his village. Yep. Oh, absolutely. The demon possessed, for sure. Uh, even the one that lived in the cave, and lived in the caves. I'm not sure you're talking about him or not, but definitely he cut himself with stones. So self-abuse. You know, some of them had he had a cutting thing. You know, yeah. which is something more and more young women struggle with. Right. Jesus himself. Yes. Absolutely. The abandonment he felt for his family. Certainly, the abuse he took. Certainly, he is the perfect high priest because he suffered in every way, like we have. Um, yet without sin, but certainly he relates. Yeah, I read an amazing uh, thing recently uh, about Jesus. Uh, if you're familiar with David Wilkinson, um, very famous guy, but he was talking about when Jesus was carrying his cross and he couldn't carry it. He wasn't enough for it. You know, he was too broken. And he said, Jesus was a completely broken man at that point. You know, that, that another person had to be made to carry the cross for him. He couldn't move another step. 
And sometimes we don't see Jesus that way. We see him as a wall of strength. But yes, I appreciate you bringing him up. Yeah, I think his, his band of followers would, um, could have been almost like a Celebrate Recovery group. He could have just he had his own, uh, you know, uh, Celebrate Recovery right there on the spot because you go through, and we don't know the histories of all the other apostles, but you can, uh, don't have to use too much imagination to realize that, uh, that when it says that people looked at his ministry, they said he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Um, that was probably code for addicts, you know, that, that, that had the negative connotation. But in knowing that, then it's also exciting to hear um, the, you know, the class is called Connected uh, because, get the slides right here, because um, his answer, his answer to these people, this group of people, uh, was come follow me. You know, uh, in Master Plan of Evangelism, it, it talks about in other books that when he chose the 12, he chose so they might be with Jesus. His answer to abandonment, addiction, and abuse was come walk with me. Come be with me. Come build a relationship. I will teach you what a, a real relationship, what real intimacy, what God's plan for relationship was to look like. And you think that's probably one of the reasons why Jesus had to come in the flesh and not just the Bible be dropped out of the sky because he wanted to show them real face-to-face heart-to-heart relationships. And he wanted to minister through these relationships, these connections, and that's how his ministry was so powerful amongst those who had abandonment, addiction, and abuse. When I was was writing the book Grace Calls, Spiritual Recovery After Abandonment, Addiction, and Abuse, I knew that the only way people could go there was with Jesus. So there are 12 stones in the book, and in each stone you're asked to first invite Jesus to come and be with you to go stand on the stone of trauma, on the stone of thorns, on the stone of triggers, on the stone of dignity. But Jesus had to be the guide. And after I was finishing the book, I stumbled on a type of therapy. I think it's called uh, Maranatha, if I'm not mistaken, therapy. And what it was is there were people ministering in countries that had experienced genocide and trying to help Christians who had witnessed their mother's head be chopped off or brutal rapes or their parents burned to death. And they wondered, how can we help these people? And they discovered something so important that if, those, if they could teach those people to picture Jesus sitting there during the session, right there, you know, with them, that their their healing just escalated dramatically. And so for me, learning to invite Jesus into those places where I've had abandonment, addiction, and abuse has changed everything. So obviously, Jesus' goal was to create a people that was free to love, free to experience true relationship, true intimacy, and then ultimately, through the body, the church, he wanted these relationships to thrive. He, you know, we, we talk about, and it's true, we come together to worship, and worship is great. I love to worship. But the purpose of the body, there's a lot more scriptures in the, in, the, in the Bible about the purpose of the body being to connect and to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. There's a lot more scriptures about the connection that needs to happen amongst his body than there are worship. And I'm not, I don't want to compare the two or try to make one greater than the other. 
but if we think the only reason we come forward, come together is to worship, we've missed a lot of the scriptures. Because there's a whole lot about having relationships that are deep enough that you know somebody's wounds and you can weep with them. And that takes a little more effort than just sitting next to somebody in the pew. Okay? There's a lot more to it than that. And so uh, I believe that the vision of God was to create an atmosphere where relationships would thrive. Think of the man who cut himself with stones is an excellent example and one that I talk about in Grace Calls. But, you know, the, a confusing thing happens because here he is. He's, he's now he's in his right mind. Jesus healed him. He feels peace. And naturally, he wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, stay here and tell what the Lord has done for you. And for the longest time, I thought that was all about the mission. But then I realized something. That man needed to go back and be transformed within the very community of people that hurt him. He needed to learn to trust again. He needed to build relationships. And those people, I'm sure there were disciples there. Jesus wouldn't have left him alone. They needed to learn from him. They needed to learn from his wounds. And so Jesus cared about relational healing. I think there's even a church in Nashville. Is it Nashville, a hospital church or something like that? Or um, I heard about the group that they, they that their, that's their mission is to feel like people can come in there and heal um, because it's a wounded people. Next slide, please. And so um, the reason why God hates these things or why he cares about these things so much, abandonment, addiction, abuse, or even sin itself, is because these are relationship killers. Yeah, I think sometimes he's sinless, and I'm thinking, well, how did, how did God say, well, this is sin, and that's sin, and I know some people get real religious sometimes and try to, well, is that really sin? Or, you know, they get technical about sin, but I like to look at it more in a, in a general term of why God says, okay, don't do this, avoid this. I believe it's because God ultimately wants us to be in great relationships. The whole purpose of Christianity is relational, and these are things that kill relationships. You think of the Ten Commandments even, or even the list in the New Testament, oftentimes sexual sin is the top of the list. Well, adultery can kill a relationship pretty quickly. Okay, And we've, we in our ministry deal a lot with helping people recover after infidelity in marriages. And of course, my own sexual addiction did so much damage, almost destroyed our relationship. We know and have witnessed over and over how sexual sin kills relationships. Unfortunately, pornography is killing relationships in multiple ways. One of the things I've discovered, or actually, um, I think it was through Harry Schomburg's book, but uh, when we talk to young people, we try to help them understand scientifically even how the brain works and why pornography is destructive. <clears throat> but one of the things it does is it stunts your emotional growth. You stunt your emotional growth. And I've seen this, I've seen it over and over, but you think about when you're in fifth grade, that's a long time ago for me, but um, <laughs> fifth grade, that's when girls were maturing. And in my fifth grade, out in the middle of the cornfield in Illinois, all the guys could talk about were the girls and who was had breasts and who didn't and who was developing sexually and who wasn't. It was, and I, I asked, uh, we were teaching a group of several hundred teenagers in Mexico City, and I was like, um, I was feeling like, oh gosh, these are babies. I don't know what, can we even talk about sexual things for these? They were preteens. The preteens, and I can, is this even appropriate? And so I did a little game called Mismo or Diferente. And I said, okay, this is what it was like in my fifth grade class. The 
preoccupation with sex and, and people who are uh, maturing sexually, I said, mismo or diferente? Same or different. You know. And of course they said, mismo. And I said, by seventh grade, a lot of the students in my class were already sexually active. Mismo or diferente? Mismo. So I kind of gave, I kind of, okay, we can talk about this, because <laughs> they're living in this world. But I thought about how crazy, one guy, crazy guy, I mean, I remember, still to this day, I remember looking down and seeing him, he had, he had a broken arm already, but with his broken arm, he threw himself down on the, the snow-covered ground to look up a girl's skirt. I mean, that's how, that's how <laughs> crazy it was, and that's very mature, right? Well, you know, fast forward to when we were uh, in Freeport, Bahamas, and we were, had a day to rest, and we were sitting in a, uh, a seaside cafe, and here was two probably 70-year-old guys, 65, 70-year-old guys uh, at the table next to us, and they were talking about uh, rating uh, the spring break, break girls that were in, in town for spring break, and they said, well, guys, they were telling the bartender, oh, the best we saw today was a seven. You know, they were rating these girls from one to ten, and they, these two old men were saying they were rating the, the girls. You know, the, the, talking about what kind of bikinis they had. Yeah, on, yeah, and, know, and they all so. had the same kind of bikinis on, and I'm like, okay, their emotional growth got stunted. Okay, <laughs> they're still fifth graders. They're still fifth graders. Yeah. They never grew up emotionally. They were stunted most likely because of sexual sin. It stunts your emotional growth. You get stuck in a childlike state, a very narcissistic, selfish state, because the whole thing is about pleasing and satisfying yourself, and it locks you into that. And boy, does that do a lot of good for a marriage, right? <laughs> Bringing that into a marriage, uh, that, that state of emotional growth, um, that state of selfishness is absolutely destructive. So we could ask, you know, are these wounds even important to heal? And my answer is yes, yes, yes. Because they left me with an insecurity in my soul. You know, a sense that I wasn't protected, a sense that I wasn't safe. And that impacts how you view yourself, how you view others, how you view God. You know, even, I mean, I was a zealot for my baptism, evangelistic, a zealot. I taught my first Women's Day, six months old in Christ on evangelism. I was known for my zeal. But I, inside of me, there was a little girl that hadn't healed some parts yet. And going back and really letting those losses be drained and let Jesus join me and tell them what they mean has changed everything for me. Right, so you can name any sin, and whether it's it's lying, that really does, relationships a lot of good, right? Or, or stealing, if I steal your stuff, that's gonna cause a rift in our relationship. I mean, you name any sin, and basically you see how they all are relationship killers, and that's why God wants us to get repent of our sins and leave our sins behind, because he wants us to have great connected relationships. Next slide, please. And obviously, um, you know, we saw from the scriptures earlier, First Corinthians uh, 12, where God's vision is that his church be a church where everybody's connected and feels each other's wounds, feels each other's pain, and also feel each, each other's victories. This kind of connected body, a body joined together by ligaments, and such a beautiful vision painted of the church. And of course, ultimately, on judgment, the words you don't want to hear is, depart from me, I never knew you. It's about relationship. Ultimately, God's vision is for us to be in relationship with him, and we don't want to miss that. So here's what was news for me. Jesus not only wants to know the super spiritual, zealous, happy, contented parts of me, he wants to know the other parts. 
His grace is enough. He wants to know the parts of me that agonize, the parts of me that despair, the parts of me that feel shame, the parts that I'm afraid to talk about. Jesus is more than enough for those parts. And something Dave and I have discovered is really grace is the answer to pornography, the answer to sexual addiction, the answer to abuse. Grace is the answer, and grace is the safety net that lets us do the deep work of the soul. And grace is the safety net that if we allow it, will allow us to have this depth of connection with each other. So, um, to me, uh, again, I talked about the, my struggle, my area of addiction is primarily sexual addiction. And verses like Ephesians 5.3 drove me crazy because it says not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. And I'm like, that is just impossible. That's like, that is so much not me. I had so high of a standard, I can't even dream about living that scripture out. And then it says, you know, those who live like this uh, cannot inherit eternal life. I'm like, am I even going to go to heaven? I mean, this is, these problems I have are ongoing. Where does that even leave me with some great insecurity? And also, where's the answer? I mean, I saw the, the, the standard and the condemnation, but where's the answer? And as I went back and went to the scriptures and said, God, I, I'm missing something because I've been reading the scriptures from my youth and I haven't overcome this sexual addiction. What am I missing? I know the answers have to be in the Bible. Why can't I? I've got a Bible degree, a degree in biblical languages. Why can't I figure this out? Can you show me what I'm missing? So I went back to Ephesians 5. But instead of starting in verse 3, about not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity, I actually started in 5.1, where it says... Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's the context. That's the context. Don't start in verse 3 about, but among you there must not. No, no. You've got to back up and read the whole context. He's saying the answer is to live a life of love. Mm. The answer to overcome false intimacy, as Harry Schomburg written his book about false intimacy, which is what pornography is and adultery and all these things are false intimacy. The answer to false intimacy is true intimacy. If you live a life of love, then you can overcome the false. I tell people, it's like, you offer me a McDonald's hamburger and you offer me a rack of ribs, this is not a hard decision, okay? <laughs> this, is a, this is an easy decision, you know, what I'm gonna choose, okay? And so, it's the same way. Until you experience true intimacy, it's hard to reject the false intimacy. Because there's a, a, an amount that sin does have a pleasure to it. But once you've experienced real relationships, their true acceptance and true love and true connection, then you can say no to the faults. You can say no to the fast world of fantasy. You say, I don't want that. I want the real stuff. I want reality. I want true intimacy. And that's God's plan. This connection is God's plan. So we can reject the addiction and the false intimacy of the world. So my first task, you know, as someone who's suffered these things, but now as a wounded healer, when a woman comes to me, you know, I remember very vividly a woman coming to me, and she was shaky, you know, shaky. And uh, we sat down on a couch, and she said, you are the only person in this world, I think, I can tell this to. And it was that she had become, her and her husband had become embroiled in a threesome. And... Um, 
And I remember sitting there with her, and, and, and it was this moment. It was like she had finally come out with it. What would I say? And I knew in that moment my first task was to love her. You know, was to tell her, oh my gosh, you're so courageous for coming to me with this. And I'm so touched that you would choose me, that you would trust me with this. And I feel the heaviness of the secret you've borne for so long. And I want you to know I love you right now. I love you in this. And God loves you in this. And there's a way out. You know, but that's what we need is we need recovery groups are not to bang on people. You know, our, my first women's recovery group for women whose, whose husbands were addicts, we call it Partners in Purity. My partner, you know, who had started it was very zealous. So we came in the group, first group, and she started saying, now this is a group about repentance, and we're all here to repent, and you know, this is sin, and I, I just put my hand on her knee, like, squeezed her knee, and she looked at me, and I'm like, yeah. um, can I say something? You know, let's pull this back in, because those women were broken. You know, they were, they were smoldering wicks. You know, they needed someone to see them and to see their pain and love them. And so that is the key that we're going to talk about today is how to let, how to help people let go of that shame. Or so to move more quickly. Yeah, similarly yeah. In, the, in the men's groups, I see um, men's groups, purity groups, I mean, some people could call them accountability groups. And, I, and we do have accountability. But to me, that misses the real purpose of the group because I consider them as relational boot camps opportunities to learn how to build true intimacy, how to be emotionally present with other people, how to listen to other people, how to reflect back their pain, how to comfort someone, how to connect with someone at a deeper level, how to be vulnerable. All those intimacy skills we're never taught as, as young men, um, that's what we do. We identify feelings. We do the things, the hard work of developing intimacy. That's the core of a recovery group, in my mind. Accountability sure is there. Somehow accountability, gives the impression that, oh, if you're afraid enough, if you're scared enough of the consequences, you'll, you'll, you'll overcome the sin. But I had that, and people tried to help me overcome mine. I was threatened with being brought before the church. Uh, I was threatened with so many things, but that did not stop my behavior. I started getting long-term success and long-term victory when I learned to have a true intimacy and connected relationships where I could be vulnerable and be accepted. That was the core, which I believe is biblical, for recovery. And that woman and her husband ended up getting into recovery and went through a journey, and now they're awesome. You know, we've seen that multiplied over and over and over. What a, what a, what a beautiful thing. All right. So we covered, go ahead and skip on. And we've covered we've talked this one. So yeah. on. <laughs> All right. Um, this quote, there's a, there's a TED talk out there that uh, I recommend highly guy named Johan Hari, which is, he's a British guy, he's a researcher, he's not a doctor, he's a researcher, and he's got a TED talk called, Why Everything We Thought We Knew About Addiction Was Wrong. Okay. Why Everything We Thought We Knew About Addiction Is Wrong is his TED talk, Johan Hari. And I love this quote, sobriety or purity is not the absence of a drug, but rather the presence of connections. And I had a great talk with a guy, a peer group this week, like, you know, is uh, guys we keep a sobriety date but sometimes it, it's we don't know if, if what that tells us all is the sobriety date and it's like it's great to keep a sobriety date but it doesn't tell the whole story 
And certainly in this quote, uh, I think tells a lot more of the story. How you're doing with your sobriety has a lot to do with how many connections have you formed. How many people do you have that you can tell everything? How much connection do you have on transparency do you have? So that's a, that's a keepable quote. I definitely recommend Johan Hari's um, uh, TED Talk on why everything we thought we knew about addiction was wrong. And you know, you might be wondering, what in the world is that picture? <laughs> because um, there are seven women there in different colors with their arms crossed for those listening to this uh, by audio. And uh, there's, there's some wild colors floating around them. But really, that pictures out that scripture that where Jesus said, if you clean out a room of a demon, sweep it clean, and nothing else moves in, seven more demons move in. In other words, if we don't take the false intimacy of pornography, hooking up, you know, um, dating lines, uh, social media addiction, whatever it is, and if we don't replace it with relational depth, with connection, with love, with grace, with belief that they can become wounded healers, then we're at risk of worse, of worse coming, of that empty spot getting filled with other things. So Dave and I, you know, we are, again, our ministry is called Purity Restored, and we talk a lot about positive purity. Positive purity, and what that is, is that purity is our legacy. It's our gift, it's our promise, it's our gift from God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. One of the first things Jesus said in his public ministry. And so that is something to be stretched after and attained for. Purity is not what you don't do. You know, purity, positive purity means it's who you are, it's who you become. And because of who you are, you don't want that anymore as you really learn and you form deep relationships and you learn new ways of dealing with shame. I had a counseling session where the, the counselor said, Dave, tell me, tell me a time in your life before the chaos of sexual addiction. Uh, tell me about what that might look like. And I immediately remembered as a boy in the cornfields of Illinois, uh, running around uh, the cornfields down to the little creek by my house with my dog, Tarzan, and uh, laying on the, the, the back of the, the creek back the, the bank, the river bank, and and the the wind was blowing through the corn stalks and rustling, and the birds were flying above, and Tarzan was chasing the muskrats, and it was just you know uh, I felt so at peace with God and so so free, and I said he said that's what we want to anchor to, so the idea of purity restored is not just stopping a behavior, it's taking people back to that place of freedom. Yes. People that back to that Garden of Eden type experience where you're running free and with God and in your other relationships, you're free to be who you are, you're free to walk with God with a clean conscience. Yeah, so after Dave told me about that, I'm like, honey, do you need a dog? <laughs> and we actually got a dog, Mojo. You know, I named him to get, help Dave get back his mojo. Not, yeah. not like the Austin Powers kind of mojo. The spiritual mojo. Spiritual mojo. Clarify that a little bit, you know. But from the time mojo was a pup, there'd be times it was very early in our recovery, and I'd come home, and it would be tough between us. Maybe there'd been some kind of setback. It'd be tough. And Dave would be curled up on the floor holding that dog, you know, 
and singing to it and you know and just loving Mojo. So Mojo knew his task and when I'd have recovery groups in the house there'd be times he'd be asleep. He liked to sleep, you know. He'd be asleep at a whole different part of the house and we'd be sitting in my office with the door shut and a woman would start crying and all of a sudden we'd hear whoop. It was Mojo throwing himself against the door to get in because he knew his job. So we we lost him uh, last year. We lost 17 years. Yeah, we lost him last year. And uh, but um, even a dog can be a help as far as connection. So one of the things that um, Johan Hari talks about that makes him come to the conclusion that everything we thought we knew about addiction was wrong was studied by a guy named Dr. Bruce Alexander out of the University in British Columbia, and his study on addiction was around rats. And they had different elements of the study. But the first element of the study was they gave rats a choice. They had two bottles there. They could get water. They could get water that was laced with drugs. Okay, oh, it was heroin, heroin or cocaine. It was something pretty powerful. I think it was and, heroin. And they, they, they found out uh, you had the dog, you had the dog, you had the, the rat in the cage by himself, <laughs> all by himself in this cage. And he, he had to choose between the drug and the plain water. And once he discovered the heroin, uh, he, he hit that little button over and over and over again until he just collapsed uh, from exhaustion and he got addicted uh, to the drug. And Dr. Alexander conjectured like, well, so they, rats have a similar you know, characteristic to humans and uh, we can see then how addiction is so powerful that it can be a strong impulse that it overcomes everything else, their desire to, feed, to, to eat, to do anything sleep, it can totally take over. And those of you who have had internet pornography know you can just click, 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 click until hours just pass away. Uh, you wonder what in the world happened. But he said, what about if we do a redo the experiment, experiment? Instead of having the rat in the cage by itself, let's have the same two choices, the water and the, and the drug. But let's put in this cage, let's make it a rat park. Let's get everything rats would love. You know, a little ball to play on, a little wheel to run on, uh, un plenty of other good-looking rats around. You know, lots of lots of friends to, to play the with. The opposite sex. Yeah, let's let's put everything. Let's make a little rat little rat heaven here, and let's see what happens and see what choices the rat would make. And actually, over time, they saw that that rat began to stop using the drug, and was happy with just the water. It was like that really got their attention. Like, wait a second. What's going on here? And so they, they did the experiment another time. This time, the first round was all they could get was heroin. They wanted to make sure this rat got high as a kite. You know, this rat wanted to get totally addicted. And then after the rat was fully addicted, then they put it in Rat Park with other rats and to see would he then reject. Uh, and sure enough, the rats gradually weaned himself off the drug and lived and chose to live with the pure water instead, and that's where this quote came before, where Johan says, the real issue in prediction and in recovery is the connect connections. Once the rat had a, a friendship, had a base of relationships around him, they no longer needed the drug. And that's really kind of the, the core of what we have seen biblically and lived out. But unfortunately, in our religious environment, what often happens is when people are in sin, we isolate them, mm -hmm. we shame them, we cut them off from relationships, and therefore we wonder why 
they're not getting well, they're not repenting, they're not getting over this. Maybe we've missed some we of God's, God's wisdom in how people are to break free and overcome abandonment, addiction, and abuse. Go ahead. I, I love the scripture, Philippians 1. Uh, it's one of my, those who've been around me enough, they've, they've heard me use this scripture like over and over again, but I just can't get over it. Um, Philippians 1, where Paul says, this is my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. How do you get pure, Paul? How did Paul want the people in Philippi to be pure? He said, listen, I'm praying that your love may abound. And not just abound, but abound more and more. That's a lot of love. Okay? Abounding love's a lot. Now to abound more and more, it's a lot of love. But he talks about this love. It says it, it has to be in knowledge and depth of insight. It has to be deep. You have to know each other. You have to really have insight. But the result is you'll be able to discern what's best, which is a good thing, to know what to do, have good insight, and be pure and blameless till the day of Christ. Purity is the byproduct of amazing, abounding love and knowledge and depth of insight. And these are the kind of relationships that we can build in recovery. But one of Dave and I's tasks, and we started realizing people, when we were leading a church, people were jealous of our recovery relationships and the depth that was there. We're like, not just people in recovery need this, every Christian needs yes. this. All of us need it. We need this depth of insight and we need to be known in our most fragile spots and loved. So basically we covered this. Recovery really equals replacing false intimacy with true intimacy, because almost any kind of addiction, these things become your friends. Whether it's a TV show, there's some people that thought friends were their actual friends. I mean, that was, they, they kind of you hear people talk about sports sometimes, and you think they played the game. Like we, we, got, we scored the touchdown, and we you think they're out on the field doing this, you know? But they they form these vicarious relationships to where these become like their friends. Their, their team becomes like their friend, or their TV show, or their favorite store, or their favorite restaurant. We can become False intimacy can hit us in so many different areas, the things we don't even think about. And these become our go-tos. When we, we need some comfort, when we need some kind of thing that feels better, these become our go-tos, our certain internet sites, our certain shows, our certain hobbies. There's so many ways. It's not just about these big addictions. There's so many subtle ways that false intimacy creeps into our lives. I love this chart because it shows us really where repentance lives, where transformation lives. Because we can get focused on the things that are sticking out at the top of the iceberg. Uh, love addiction is what I eventually discovered that I had. You know, from being sexually abused as a kid, then another sexual abuse later on, and then an attempted rape later on, and some abandonment later on, and before you knew it, I was addicted to love, and I would put myself under other people to gain their love. And I learned a lack of dignity. And I learned a deep insecurity. And I can remember women saying to me, why do you have to be so insecure? Can't you just be happy? And, and that's because they were looking at the top of the iceberg. But underneath live all these things, you know, that are really where transformation takes place. Because we've always got to ask, why? 
somebody uh, masturbates all the time, you know, and this is a big deal today. It is. It's a big deal. We've got to ask why. You know, it's the more important question. Why? You know, let's, let's look underneath there. Let's, in a tender, in a curious way, and, and we'll find, you know, for women, uh, Charlotte Castle, Women, Sex, and Addiction. She did a huge survey, and she found under women, underneath women's, you know, psyches, women who were engaging in out-of-control sexual behaviors or thoughts or compulsions, she found the real issue was they hated their bodies, they didn't, feel, they didn't feel like anyone would protect them. They wanted a sense of power. They didn't think they could support themselves. These are the things that live underneath relational trauma, affirmation deficit, shame. We'll talk more about that. Uh, and then the accuser and all the stuff he has to say about all that stuff underneath there. So, you know, the key task in helping each other overcome these things is having the love and curiosity and inviting Jesus with to go visit these sensitive spots and, and drain the pain of them. And so um, we really want to talk a little bit about um, how grace, Robin mentioned earlier, the power of grace and how grace is involved. And of course, that chart just reminds me of Philippians 1. I'm just kind of stuck on that scripture, but it's like knowledge and depth of insight. Well, yes. the knowledge and depth of insight, that's all that stuff below the waterline. Okay, that's the knowledge and depth of insight that comes in the relationships that we're trying to build for freedom. But obviously, she talked about grace. And we, we like to have, we don't think grace uh, gets enough attention, but also enough depth. We all understand by saving grace. You know, we think about grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, we understand that, and that's a very huge part of grace, on God's unmerited favor. There's other scriptures, when you plug in the word grace, or you see the word grace, and you plug in salvation, it doesn't quite make sense. Like, no, there's something else going on here. There's something beyond that. Is this a grace is a bigger topic than salvation. It, it goes beyond that. And the definition that we like is God's affirming presence. God's affirming presence. And when God told Paul, my grace is sufficient, he wasn't saying, hey, you're saved, buddy. Just forget everything else. You're going to heaven, so just you know, get over the rest of your stuff. <laughs> he wasn't saying that. He was saying, my grace, my affirming presence is sufficient. When he greets the churches, grace be with you. Okay? I think he's talking about more than salvation. He's talking about my presence is there with you, my affirming presence. And you start looking at various scriptures, you really see that this definition is powerful. And it's amazing what happens when we have an affirming presence in our life. When Robin talked about her relationship with that, and that mentor relationship, and in so many situations, because when abandonment, addiction, and abuse are there, especially with a guy named Russell Willingham has said that in every case of sexual addiction he's ever counseled, which that's his full-time job, is a counselor for sexual addiction. He said every case, 100%, all the men he's counseled, there was an abandoned, abandonment wound somewhere in their life. There was an abandonment wound at the core. Underneath that, that iceberg, he found abandonment. Well, how do you combat abandonment? An affirming presence, mm -hmm. a grace, the grace to be an affirming presence, to be emotionally present, to listen, to be there for someone, which by the way, I think Jesus said something about, I am with you always. Mm -hmm. I think he kind of understood that we needed his presence in a very powerful way. And so. When there's this grace, we find the power to overcome. When Paul says in Titus that the grace of God 
enables us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. Think about that as the affirming presence of God. If he's right there with us, affirming us, we don't need to go to comfort ourselves with addiction. We don't need those things because we have, we have the real intimacy and not something fake. And so, but the problem on the other side, we're going to talk about a little bit now, the opposite of grace is this thing called shame. This thing called shame. And we find how that shame has the opposite effect. We try to use it, especially religious people try to use shame to help people stop addiction behaviors. But actually it has the opposite effect. So it's grace, if our view of grace is really small and limited and conflicted, like you get grace when you're good. You get grace when you're happy. You know, you grace. If our view of grace is small, then shame has room to grow and expand. The number one belief of all sexual addicts, if anyone really knew me, they would reject me. For women as well. You know, for women it can be doubly shameful because we made this thing that it was a man's battle. And surely this is not true in our churches, in all of Christendom. This is not true. So if, if shame gets a stronghold, we can't face what we need to change because the accuser has a grip on our heads and our hearts and there's a deep insecurity, you know, so, I mean, people ask me, well, what about, you know, the scriptures to say we should be ashamed? And, you know, there's a chart in Grace Calls that kind of addresses that, that there's a difference between good shame, which would be godly sorrow, you know, like, oh, I hurt you, I'm sorry that hurt you. I care that that hurts you. I don't want to keep hurting you. That's godly sorrow. And that's the kind of good shame talked about in the Bible. But toxic shame is the sense, I'm unlovable. I'm not worth investing in. No one would ever want me to lead anything. You know, if they knew X, Y, Z, that's a form of toxic shame. So shame increases grace gets too small, shame gets more power. As grace gets big, shame begins to lose its power. Go ahead. So this is a, a, a quote that helps us understand a little bit more about shame. Uh, this book is from The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. Uh, he says, shame as a neurobiological phenomenon is not bad in and of itself. It is rather our system's way of warning us of possible impending abandonment okay think about that okay shame is there and it's it's, it's warning warning somebody's gonna learn about you and look out they're gonna drop you like a bad habit they're gonna they're gonna want nothing to do with you when they know who you really are so that when shame comes it's like that warning sign saying I'm about to be abandoned here and so what happens then although we did not think of it in those terms however intent we, we tend however we tend to respond to it relationally, moving away from others rather than toward them. So the idea is, you can't, if I abandon you first, you can't abandon me, you know? If, if I reject you first, if I protect myself from you, then whatever you say doesn't bother me because I'm already, I've already cut myself off from you. And so instead of moving towards people when we feel shame, we move away from them. Right, so in our fear of being abandoned, we abandon. And that explains a lot about ourselves and how we function. And this is one reason I'm, for women, I'm such a fan of book groups. And these three books, it's just been miraculous, the groups that have taken place out of these groups where women 
get together and process the deep stuff, led by a vulnerable leader who processes in real time her stuff, not her stuff from 10, 20, 30 years ago. Her, you know what I mean, that already is all wrapped up neatly and tied with a bow. But where we process the real stuff and instead of finding abandonment, they find safety, they find hope, they, they go on spiritual journeys together. Talk about, so we, we talk about wanna, Eve's song a little bit about that, why the shame of dealing with shame in that book. Yeah, Eve's song is actually a miracle. Publisher after publisher told me this could not be done. And um, because it's a cross between a fiction and a nonfiction. So it reads firmly as a fiction. It starts a year after Cain killed Abel, and Eve cannot go on. She's devastated. She has a cloak on that she made for him, and Adam has had it with her. He's, he's like, I'm going to burn the cloak. He threatens to burn the cloak. And so they separate. And Jehovah, as she knows him, takes Eve on a journey of seven memories, her best ones, but then the ones she's been repressing and running from you know, of what happened in the garden, of finding Abel dead in a field, of, you know, of, um, of other things, other traumas that she's been through. But then through it, she discovers Jehovah as a God who's present and with her and who wants to heal her and wants to show how he was there in those moments. And then at the end of the book, she has to go back and repair her relationship with Adam and, and eventually, what do they do with Cain? And so it's a whole different take because what we've done is we made Adam and Eve a shame story. You know, and we made Eve the most shamed woman in this world. And I believe with all my heart that Eve is in heaven and that I'll sit with her and, and I'll ask her what she thought of my book. <laughs> and, um, but women, I just had an email from a woman uh, a few days ago that this book, you know, women who are deep in despair, in mourning, and in shame. This book is what led her out. And so, this is a great book for women's book groups. Yeah, thinking the shame. That's a lot of our ministries. Help people overcome the shame, get in the light. Eve's song. And build relationships. So, obviously, we respond, unfortunately, when shame is there, we isolate, we abandon before others can abandon us. Next slide. So in writing, um, Grace Calls, Robin kind of had a revelation about these charts about, okay, um, what about this issue of abandonment? And what about the shame? And came up with this, um, I think it was an inspired uh, chart that kind of shows the cycle of what happens, the cycle of abandonment. How the shame comes at the beginning, and then after shame is there, the, the pain of that emotional pain, shame is an emotional pain. And of course, it, when it's there, then you can't ignore it, so what do you want to do? You want to repress it, you want to push it down, you want to somehow not Brush it away. Now nah, I, I don't want. I don't want to deal with that. Uh, but then the well starts filling up. This well of abandonment starts filling up. And then, of course, the tendency, like we just talked about, is that you shut others out. Like, no, nah, I don't want to talk to anybody. That's too embarrassing. I, I can't talk to anybody about that. I, I just got to deal with that by myself. I just, just me and God. You know, just me and that super spiritual. You know. <laughs> Ignoring all the scriptures about more one quiet another. times. You know, ignoring all the scriptures about one another and confessing. Oh, just ignore all those. I'm going to be. It's just me and God are to work this out. It sounds really spiritual, but it's 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 not biblical. Okay, um, don't shut people out. And the and the, the water just keeps rising in the well of abandonment. And we we try to, to deny. We try to control. We try to to take it into our own our plan of how we're going to overcome this by ourselves. And again, the the well just keeps getting deeper 
and ultimately we and we compensate. Like, well, if I just put a little more money in the collection plate, or if I reach out to some more people, or if I, I do really good some other area of my life, it'll it'll like the old balancing act. I'll, I'll do enough good that it'll offset the bad. I'll I'll overcome it in I'll, the, the the scale of goodness and badness. I'll 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 weigh to the good side with my all the good things I am, and ultimately then. Uh, the well gets deeper, the pain is still there, and finally then we break down and just get tired of fighting, and then we, what we do, we, we medicate with our old addictive way. Whatever was our source of comfort, we go, we go back to that food, pornography, whatever was our, our source of comfort, we go back to that, and it's like, have a Britney Spears moment, like, Oops, I did it again. It's like, it's like, um, it's like, oh, and, and now we feel even more shame because now we, we just did it again. Now it's like, oh my gosh, I, I, was, I was trying so hard to, to overcome this on my own and ignore it and, and, and say I was done with it, I'll never do it again. And now I did it again, and so now I, the shame well just, it, it builds up and, and we drown. Uh, go ahead and flip. So, you know, I asked God because this all happened. Dave built me a writing cabin. I have the writing cabin to die for in our backyard, by the way, that my husband slaved over for me, this writing cabin. But um, I, was, I was in prayer, you know, and, and, and I was like, God, there has to be an answer to this. And then this came to me that changed everything. And that was, we need a drainage system for the soul. You know, we had a basement once that got water in it, and so we had a company come in and put this little pipe all the way around, this hidden pipe. So the water would still come, but it had a, an exit route out of our house now. And the soul needs an exit route for this stuff. And so, and when shame comes, instead of like pretending we don't have a wound, oh no, I'm strong, I'm happy, I'm good, I'm a Christian, you know, get tender with our wound. Like, oh, there you are. Thank you for showing up today. What do you have to tell me? And then we say, Jesus, hey, come on, Jesus. Look at this wound with me. What does it mean? Why is it here again? Why is it coming up again? See what's happening? We're losing our fear of our wounds. And so then we, if we're tender with ourselves, we begin to think, just maybe, we could trust someone else. And we find that safe person, like I did, you know, to start telling everything to. And we learn we can have multiple safe people in a book group, in a recovery group, in, in, in a family group, or a life group, whatever you call them. And we begin to accept help. And we learn something we called surrendering our pain. Surrendering our pain. Drain the pain. It, drain the pain. Mm -hmm. You know, last night I was like, Dave, I got some emotional pain going on. And he's like, what is it, honey? And we have this thing that Dave will sometimes, um, I need Satan battled off for me. So I'll tell him some pain and then Dave will. Where is it at? Where is it at? Poo! Bang! Ducky, ducky, ha! It helps. Uh, so you see what happens now. Now shame has a place to exit the soul. You know, it can drain off. And then I began to feel some victory, like, hey, I, I went to somebody and they didn't reject me. And, you know, I told this, this stuff I thought was so terrible. I told them, and so unspiritual. And, and they loved me. And maybe I'm changing, you know? Um, and then we began to accept our weakness. And there's this beautiful Greek word, asthenia, 
Look it up in Strong's. Asthenia. A-S-T-H-E-N-I-A, something like that. Asthenia. And, and it's used of Jesus. He was crucified in Asthenia. It's used in Hebrews. We come to him, his throne of grace bringing our Asthenia. Paul talked about his God's strength was made complete in his Asthenia. It's the weaknesses that we hate about ourselves and we don't know why we can't change them. We begin to accept we are flesh and blood. We are weak. And Dave and I, we travel all over the world, but we are weak. We have lots of stuff to confess all the time because of our asthenia. And we begin to see that that's the grace of God, that I am perfectly valued with all of that. Not because just when I'm better than it, I'm valued in that. And you can see how, as you do that over and over and over again, abandonment begins to lose its grip. You know, And I begin to see abandonment as my biggest wound because you know, when my father uh, met a woman in AA and left the family at Christmas time uh, for this woman he met, three months later, my sister was killed in an automobile accident. And it was just too much. It just broke our family. And my dad disappeared, abandoned me. But you see, as I've done this, abandonment no longer has a grip on me that I have a drain system for the soul. A lot of things we do in the men's recovery group uh, we have what we call daily renewals. And the purpose of a daily renewal is, is again, back to Philippians 1 about building this abounding love and knowledge and depth of insight. But it's a list of questions we ask each other. Because guys, women do this naturally. I mean, guys have to be scripted. We need a little help to, to know what questions to ask and, and to, 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 to build these things. And we talk and, and we try to get people to surrender the pain every day. Because there's something that happens. Every, Jesus said each day has enough trouble of itself. You know? And so it says encourage one another daily in Hebrews because there's stuff. And if you think about it, somewhere, somehow, you have emotional pain every day. And if you don't drain it, it does build up and ultimately does lead to you wanting to medicate it somehow, some way. And the cycle goes over. Addiction is very similar to the cycle of abandonment over and over again. Where if we learn to be proactive and connect and surrender, connect, surrender, connect, surrender, not wait till it builds up, it's amazing how you can find freedom over addiction. It just it just works because it's just so biblical. It just works. But for guys especially, they have to be trained. If you want the, the daily renewal, we're going to have everybody that wants more information uh, get your email somehow. We'll get a sheet going or get a, your information so we can give you more because we got a lot more than we have time to talk about today. Next slide, please. So you remember where it says, um, where it says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. The antidote for abandonment is acceptance. Right. The acceptance of Christ. And this is um, another thing that Grace calls, but we need a, a new model of spiritual growth. Our old model is very two-dimensional. You're either growing or you're dying. You're going closer to God or further away from God. It's like everything is like a stock market chart. And lately, well, it, lately it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big ups and downs, okay? Um, I don't want to take you there. Never mind. Just forget that I said. Um, um, and so, um, in nature, we find a spiral as being a, a key element in nature and, and God's creation. And we believe that's what really spiritual growth in God's mind is. It's not, and that even the picture of two-dimensional. It'd be an ascending spiral as it grows higher, it gets wider. And so, what happens is we'd like to think, "I repented of that, and God delivered me, and I'll never struggle with it again." 
And, and if, that, if that's your life and your story, I'm happy for you. But that's not normal, okay? <laughs> that's not common. I've had many people come back to me who thought they were delivered six months later, well, maybe not quite so much, um, you know? And so, and what happens is, because of that, shame is prevalent because then we feel like we're playing the old game shoots and ladders. Yeah. It's funny in the Caribbean they call it snakes and ladders. It's a, in other countries they call it snakes and ladders. But you're you're about to get to the top and all of a sudden you hit that big that big nasty shoot and you're right back and it's like oh it's so it's depressing. Even worse if it's a snake. It's, it's so it's so depressing. Okay. But what happens in the spiral of recovery is you expect you understand that those things you struggle with you're probably going to struggle with them again. They're probably going to come back around. And the emotional pain you had. You thought you were over. We were driving down the street in, in home in Idaho, and Robin just said, I just feel like crying. I feel like weeping. I just feel so sad. What's going on? And we went home and looked on the calendar, looked into our family history, and 28 years ago to the day was the day we got the call that her sister had been killed in a car accident. 28 years ago to the day, and the spiral, that pain came right back around, and she was feeling it heavy on her heart like it was the very day it happened. I mean, this is a way we're wired somehow. And so when we, the beauty of the spiral is, as it goes around, when it comes back around, if we're growing, we see things differently. Now we've got a different perspective. We're at a higher place. We say, oh, okay, instead of being shocked or embarrassed or ashamed that we're not over it yet because we've been a Christian this long and you're still struggling with that, I've, God, forgive me, I've done that to people before and said, try to get them to change. Like, how long, brother, have you been doing this? I mean, that's... No, no, we expect it to come back around. When it does, we say, oh, there you are. I need to be back. But you know what? Last time you lied to me and told me that if I did this, I wouldn't have to confess it. You know, that didn't work so well. Because the Holy Spirit beat me bloody until I did confess it. And then it did all this damage. It's like, you know what? I'm not going to buy your lie this time around because I know what happens if I do this. Thanks for coming by, but no thanks. I'm, I'm good. And, and we were able then to acknowledge these things, have a different perspective, and then move on and know that it's going to come back around again. But if I'm growing, I'll see it differently the next time. And it, it takes the shame away when you think of spiritual growth in this way. And this is Bernoulli's uh, golden spiral. It's also called the miraculous spiral because as it spirals outward, it keeps the exact same degree of curve for you science types in the room. <clears throat> but it's found all over creation um, in the flight of an eagle in the middle of a sunflower, in the curl of a wave, the exact to like, you know, uh, three decibel points, you know what I mean? It's the exact degree, it's one of the greatest evidences for God. But here's the thing, you know, the most miraculous place it's found is in your cornea of your eye. It's how we see. So we need to see the way God programmed us to see and to let go of our old linear, linear ways of seeing spiritual growth. So obviously, um, we've talked a lot about the connections. And obviously, that's one of the reasons what we fill the house with, so the seven demons worse than the first don't come back, we fill it with relationship. Mm -hmm. God, living a life of love is God's antidote. I've seen guys in recovery that can white knuckle for quite a while. They can get enough consequences. I had a guy that, you know, if he, he fell back into pornography and masturbation, he had to run like five miles. That was kind of like his, or he had to fast for three days. I forget what it was. It was something very harsh. And he got a year of sobriety. He was like, yeah, I didn't really go. I haven't acted out for a year. And we felt great for him. But man, did he crash and burn. And it, for years after that, he, 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 he struggled. 
because he didn't fill the house. He was overcoming using fear, overcoming using punishment and consequences, and he didn't fill the house, and the demons came back. And so I think God wants us to fill the house with relationships, with connections. Do you want to talk about a couple of tools? Leave with some tools. Um, hopefully have a couple of questions. Let's go on the next slide. Um, this is a quote by me. You want to quote me? Here you go. Here's my quote. We underestimate the negative effect of loneliness. We also underestimate the power of affirmation. Remember, definition of grace, God's affirming presence. Next slide. Just a reminder of the quote from Johann Hari. Sobriety is not the absence of a behavior, it's the presence of connections. And so the cool thing, where our brains are wired, is our brains are wired to develop new communities, new neighborhoods. Things you love in life, you've got a neighborhood in your brain of neural connections, the things you love. We went to Gray's last night, it was a nice restaurant downtown, and uh, I could form a community in Gray's. Gray's could become a new, a new place of, for, 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 for me to live, okay? Uh, I, I like, if you haven't been to Loveless Cafe, um, I've, got, I've only been there a couple times, but I've got a nice little neighborhood forming around. Uh, you see, I'm a food guy, okay? That's pretty obvious, I'm a food guy. But we developed new communities, but last night we got to spend with Dr. Marcus, went out to dinner, and our relationship with Dr. Marcus, I've got a nice big bright spot in my brain for that relationship. Of course, this relationship, um, uh, amazing. I, I won't even I'll start crying, but it's, it's a big bright. I got a big room in my brain mm -hmm. for this lady. And uh, these relationships, we form these spots, these new communities in our brain, these new neural connections that are so become our new source of comfort, and they overcome, they're much more powerful than the false intimacy and the sin that's held us in the past. So the vision is, and the vision we want to leave you with, is to become a wounded healer. And that's the journey of Grace Calls. You become a wounded healer, which means you minister out of your wounds. Um, and the whole the story of Good, Good Samaritan is very instructive. You know, I'll let you read about it in the book. But we learn how to minister. We have our own kind of olive oil and uh, wine with us when we are with people. We minister out of our wounds, and wounds become healing for us and healing for others. All right. So, I think we're done. Now we're giving a couple resources. Um, we believe grace is the most powerful source of the universe. Okay, amen. Let's go over our the resources. Is our, is our time? Oh, yeah, there we go. 38 years uh, next month. So. All right. And of course, Jesus says, I am with you always. He is all about staying with us, filling us with this amazing relationship that gives us power to deal with abandonment, addiction, and abuse. He understood the value of saying, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. The ultimate power to overcome. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. The message you just heard was from Marcus D. Carvalho's track called Untangling Addiction, Stronger Through Jesus Style Discipleship. Make sure to go online and download his free ebook called Untangling Addiction. You can find it at discipleship.org/addiction. That's discipleship.org/addiction. In addition to this podcast and that resource, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.